Welcome to Bloody Mary, a podcast about horror movies, sexuality, and feminism. I'm your host, Chicago comic Kristen Ryan, and today we have with us professor of film at Columbia College, Carrie Callis. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me here. Hi. I'm so thrilled to have you here. Uh, I think you are the most professional person in regards to film I've ever talked to in my life. (laughs) Oh, no. The pressure's on. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about you, Carrie. What What do you do? I teach screenwriting in the Cinema Art and Science Department at Columbia, and I am an assistant um, filmmaker, and um, I'm also a writer. I'm working on a novel, I'm working on some feature screenplays and some short screenplays. Ooh, cool. What is your novel about? Marie Laveau, the voodoo oh, queen oh, of New Orleans. Sh- oh, shit, I want to read that. <laughs> New Orleans. You're not supposed to say New Orleans. I don't know where I ever got that from, but New Orleans. Yeah. I always mix it up, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's kind of a historical biography, so it's, cool. um, it's sort of in my horror vein, you know. Mm-hmm. I teach horror at Columbia and Dracula, vampires, so it's, you know, my favorite genre, too. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the portrayal of her on the series of American Horror Story? I liked it. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. Um, it's very different from my from the historical portrayal that I've been researching, mm-hmm. but it was really fun and I loved America. I love America. Oh, I me thought too. it was great. I, yeah. I thought it was a great show. I think like <laughs> not all of them are great, but yeah. that one was that was that was the best I thought. I think like half the episodes I've had of Bloody Mary talk about American Horror Story. <laughs> like, Let's find a way to bring in American yeah. Horror Story. <laughs> I just I love it anytime horror comes into the mainstream. You know, yeah, me that too. Excites me because it makes me feel like there'll be more of it. Uh, yeah. So, um, what was the first horror movie you ever saw? It was uh, probably 1960s. I was probably like in the fourth grade. And uh, Dracula. It was the 1931 version of Dracula on the big screen. And I just remember I loved that movie. And, you know, I look back on it now and I think about it probably was some, you know, very sexual thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Bella Lugosi was... was, Oh, yeah. uh, uh, and now I know all the tricks they did in that movie. You know, they would use the light in his eyes and and for for oh. hypnosis and you know crazy little little filmmaker tricks to manipulate us. But at the time, I I remember being scared to death of that movie. Oh yeah. But even then, I thought it was a weird a weird ending at the very end of that movie. The uh, Mina has to be rescued and and she ends up walking up the steps like she's going to her death, but she's really going to get married. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 same (laughs) For some people. (laughs) So you enjoy horror then as a genre. I love, I love horror. It's my, I think I love horror because it represents all the fears we have as humans. And there's Mm -hmm. so many different ways to look at it. And vampires are my favorite. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, So for us today, Carrie chose to watch The Hunger which I actually had not seen, and I was really excited that you chose it. Uh, It's a 1983 film about an ancient Egyptian vampire, Miriam, who lives off the blood of her lovers, and they are given eternal life until Miriam is bored with them. John, played by David Bowie, realizes this is happening and reaches out to Dr. Sarah Roberts, who is played by Susan Sarandon, who originally thinks John's a nut and avoids him, but later becomes interested. Uh, Sarah then begins and in, becomes entangled with Miriam and is seduced by her. And uh, so, why the hunger? Well, it really is my favorite vampire film. Mm-hmm. But I have to confess, uh, since we lost David Bowie, I've I've mm-hmm. been in mourning. <laughs> I hear that. And I I don't know that I've ever mourned a celebrity the way I really mourned him. I mean, I actually cried over the loss of him. I did too. And I, I really identify what you with what you said because I never care when a celebrity dies. I'm just like, eh. And, and not that I'm cold-hearted, but, you know, there isn't a personal connection. Right. But the day that happened, I was driving to work and Modern Love came on, which is like a poppy song, and I just bawled. Like, <laughs> I know. Non-stop. I know. <sighs> And wasn't it fun to see him in this film, looking so young and so handsome? Oh, yeah. Well, for a while. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> and that made me sad too because uh-huh. I, I couldn't help but think, oh, well, the world will never see him grow old. You mm-hmm. know, he never really did grow old um, like he did in the film. Where yeah, he, oh, not like that, no. He looked like William Burroughs for a minute. He did. He did look like you're right. Um, so I was, curi- I was curious also because you teach a vampire theme class at Columbia and you have a real love of vampires. Where does this come from? I absolutely don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. And I think it always surprises people because I don't know that they, they look at me and they think, oh, I bet you that girl likes vampires and horror movies. Mm-hmm. I... I think one time I was asked to teach a class, a horror class, and I just I started watching all the vampire movies and mm-hmm. reading about the different um, subtext that was going on in the film and the different things that um, uh, vampirism can represent in society and in film especially. And it's kind of a socio-political context in, in the sense that you know, it's definitely a metaphor for aging and for celebrity and for being young. And mm-hmm. um, but I think it was also maybe maybe it was one of the first bisexual scenes I'd ever seen. Um, I don't know if it was a groundbreaking scene in film necessarily. There might have been other ones that came before it, but it certainly impressed me. Oh yeah, I was actually having dinner with a friend last night who is a lesbian, and we both love horror movies. And I was just mentioning, like, have you seen The Hunger? And she was like, Oh, oh yeah. yeah, have I? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Oh, this movie probably uh, meant a lot to you growing up. Huh? Well, and David Bowie was having an affair with Susan Sarandon at the same time that oh, they yeah. were making that film. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, so that was kind of interesting. I kind of thought um, what this piqued in me is that maybe Susan Sarandon actually is a vampire. It's like, she hasn't aged at all. I know. Like, she's amazing. She does look amazing. Well, and we could have said that about David Bowie, too. That's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> and Catherine Deneuve. Oh, no yeah. wonder they picked them. Yeah. She, she still looks beautiful, too. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and that's another thing I loved about Bowie in this movie. Like, he was so cool. Before I mean, he was being like ahead of everything, you know. Yeah. Like now that vampires are cool, he could have been like, "Oh yeah, sexy vampires." I was doing that thirty years ago. Like, <laughs> exactly. Um, I read somewhere that he he was a little worried about the the film that it might be too bloody for people to oh. to enjoy it. Hmm. Um, and I think he probably was referring referencing that that scene, you know, where she's where she stabs Miriam. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is trying to seduce her into staying and being a vampire, and Susan Sarandon is is sta- takes the onk and stabs yeah. herself in the throat. That did it's get a bloodbath. Bloody, bloody. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised too with the with the way that they drew blood. Like it was different yeah. than what I'd seen in any other film. And notice, there's never the word vampire spoken. Yeah. Never say the word vampire. Actually, what also moved me in the film so much is that there's not a lot of dialogue. No, no, it's a very visual film. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I really loved about it was um, the makeup and the costumes and oh, the yeah. art direction. I mean, that those costumes are stunning. Mm-hmm. There's just some beautiful, beautiful fabrics. And I read somewhere a long time ago that the, I can't remember the woman who was the costume designer, but that... She decided David Bowie needed this silk handkerchief in his pocket. So the co- they flew her to Italy to get this fabric <laughs> so he would look just perfect with this. Wow. <laughs> I want to be that kind of I person. I know, right? <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I admit this film had me right off the bat where they opened up with Bella Lugosi's Dead in a live performance oh, by Bauhaus. Yeah. I was like, what? yep, I'm in. <laughs> This and actually, great. that's my favorite scene of the whole film, I think, is that opening scene. Yeah, I, re- I liked watching it because like, there was no dialogue. You kind of felt like you knew what was happening, but it felt more like, ooh, it's going to be a sexy, sexy time yeah. between these two couples. <laughs> and like, maybe uh, Miriam and John are swingers, you don't know, but then, it, oh, they're, they're going to eat him. Okay. <laughs> they're going to eat him and burn him in the basement. <laughs> the attention to detail with burning them in the basement too yeah because i feel like in a lot of horror movies the killers they never show you what they do with the body so it's like what, what are they doing how they get away with that yeah, yeah. 
probably have yeah. like a stack of them or something. Well, and there's something about the fire too, you know, mm-hmm. that's really, it just sort of is the finality of that flame down in the basement. Mm-hmm. I liked the set itself. Like it was, honestly, there wasn't a lot of locations, but I feel like the the different like, uh, what do you call them? Like the scarves they use kind oh, of created the, the fabric, illusion. Oh, the fabric, that yeah. white curtains. Yeah. That was so beautiful. I mean, this is a beautiful film in mm-hmm. every way. Um, it was really interesting, and I, I have no idea why they did this. Maybe it was where the actors were at the time, but um, it was set in New York, but they actually shot that whole thing in London. Really? Isn't that interesting? That is. I don't know if maybe Tony Scott, the director, was uh, he had crew, or I don't know. I don't know why they made those choices. Um, they, I guess they only filmed in New York for like a week to pick up the exteriors and mm. stuff. But everything else was in that mansion, that gorgeous house where they lived. With all those antiques and mm-hmm. those curtains. They were, they were great. <laughs> they, were, they were great. Yeah, and the, the, <laughs> the real estate of that kind of made me laugh because I was like, oh, they're living in this huge mansion in New York and they're music teachers. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> So who was your favorite character in this movie? Oh, that's hard. I love them all. Mm-hmm. I'm probably David Bowie. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I, I think the reason I initially went to see the film, and I did see it in, 19, I think, 1983 it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see it in the theater when it came out, and I I thought in some ways he was kind of, kind of playing the character that he played in... Um, uh, the Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm-hmm. And that's really, that particular film really is what got me interested in in thinking about film and making film and um, being a writer. Is I really love that story. I thought it was a really, a really, I re- just remember being really affected as a kid. I think that was 76. And I, I was probably in high school and just thinking, wow. It's a great story. I wonder if I went back and watched it. I would think the same mm-hmm. thing. But I think his character and aging was just in the whole, you know, that as a theme in the movie of aging was just really interesting mm-hmm. to me. Um, and I, I, I mean, I remember thinking the first time I saw it, oh, the makeup's a little hokey <laughs> for mm. when he got older. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, like, when I was re-watching it again, and I, you know... I've seen it a number of times. Um, it doesn't look as bad to me now. Maybe because no. I wasn't watching it on big screen. Maybe it. <laughs> and you know, I find that that's a lot of things David Bowie is involved with. They hold up. Yeah. Like, yeah, it didn't look the best, but it didn't look bad. No, no. And even at the, uh, even that great moment when he goes to the hospital and he has to wait for two hours mm-hmm. and he ages in two hours. I think that's some of the best aging in the film is that he still looks like David Bowie and it's it's so great that he did, he never really did age looking mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> he must have moisturized a lot. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I enjoyed that scene a lot, too, because he also got so ornery. Yeah. Like, I would be too if I had to sit and wait for two hours, but also if I was aging at <laughs> like a crazy rate, I would probably be pretty pissed. My favorite part was when he held up his hands and he goes, You see these liver spots? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other character I was really drawn to was Alice. Oh. She was so plucky and, uh, you know... You know, I think that's the most shocking part of the film, is mm-hmm. her death. Yeah. It is, you know, you don't see a whole lot of films where they kill children. <laughs> no, I know Guillermo del Toro's real into it, yeah. but, <laughs> but other than him, yeah. I don't think so. The other one, you know, that vampire film, that have you ever seen that? It's a Swedish vampire film, and it is about, it's about children who are vampires, Um but just as a victim, it was, mm-hmm. it was, and because he, he loved her and yeah. they were friends, and it was like, love really kind of had a shallow and superficial meaning in this film. It did. And, uh, you know, just to like kind of jump into some of the themes I thought I saw, um, it did feel like a metaphor for like a, a bad codependent relationship. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, a lot I could of see that. The interaction between John and Miriam, like, you know, John constantly being like, you said love forever, right? We're going to be together forever, right? And I see this in some couples, you know, they like lose all sense of identity and just become like this couple being, you know, <laughs> and like, yeah. uh, you know, they don't yeah. pursue anything artistic on their own anymore or, you know, do anything independently. And then before you know it, they're just in a box in your attic, I guess. <laughs> well, and how about the betrayal? Yeah. I mean, she ultimately lied to all those lovers who were up in the attic mm-hmm. and told them that they'd be together forever. Mm-hmm. And then once he aged and he was trying to get her to kiss him, and she was like, no, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it's David Bowie, honey. You could do it. Yeah, I would <laughs> step in for you. Yeah, that's what was so interesting too. It was different from a typical vampire story because once she got, once Miriam got bored with her lover, then they started to age. The fact that they didn't die, like my one of my greatest fears ever is to be buried alive, and so like the thought Ooh. of that is oh, that's so terrifying. I couldn't imagine like just being stuck in a box, which also makes you feel like uh, Miriam's awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and to me that was really interesting because she's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I read somewhere uh, where they asked Susan Sarandon, "Oh, were you? Was it challenging for you to do a sex scene with Catherine Deneuve?" And she was like, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm about as heterosexual as you can get. No, I had no problem. Yeah, it's Catherine Deneuve." <laughs> Well, during that scene uh, when Miriam and uh, Dr. Roberts were alone, you know, and kind of like flirting a little bit, I was like, are they, are they going to, whoa, what's going on here? 1983, wow, this film just got real progressive and sexy. (laughs) Well, and what was interesting is uh, uh, in the original script, she was supposed to be really drunk and Miriam sort of. Um, seduced her and Susan Sarandon requested that um, she spill the wine so that it was a conscious choice for her to sleep with her and not you know oh I'm so drunk I I didn't mean to do what I did Mm -hmm. and so I think that added depth to the to the story I I I really like that now that I know that that scene too where like she was like the white shirt no bra oh that's hot That is such a a common occurrence, too, like uh, as a way, you know, for sexual action to start happening. Spilling Um, wine? Gosh, no one told me that. Spill this on my shirt or take it off. Oh, I gotta take it (laughs) off. And actually, like, I hadn't seen this movie, but I remember the movie cover um, from when I was little. My grandfather ran a movie store. And so I remember seeing it and always thinking, like, that looks sexy. That looks hot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's the thing. I was allowed to watch all the gore I wanted, but no sex. (laughs) So that one was restricted. (laughs) So I was denied a lot of vampire movies, actually. (laughs) There's an irony in that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, I don't know if you know that there's there's another ending for the film, too. Is there? MGM stepped in, and, and I think... I actually think this is probably, um, I think it was Susan Sarandon again. Um, she was. Ta- I read a book she, she wrote, I think it was an autobiography, and she was talking about the film and how MGM stepped in at the very end. And you know that scene at the end when she's standing out on the balcony and there's the young girl there and more curtains are blowing mm-hmm. in the wind and she's alive. The reason they did that was for sequel potential. They wanted oh. to be able to make more money off of the film in case they could have a sequel. And, I mean, if you think about it in terms of the premise, it kind of ruins the premise of the film. Honestly, it kind of confused me. Yeah. Because <laughs> I thought she died. And that was yeah. like the heroic death. You exactly. Know? Like, I reject your life and I'm not going to be like you. I would rather die than be addicted. Mm-hmm. You know? And to, that's interesting. That's, that's a really interesting thing to say. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wait but now I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah. And so I was curious about that. So is she like, is she taking over as the new mm-hmm. Miriam now? Yeah. Evidently, like I didn't know this. I, I, I actually read this someplace and I think, I don't know that I would have got this on my own, 
that you know that scene where she stabs herself in the throat mm-hmm. her blood goes into Miriam's mouth and that's why Miriam their blood her blood mingles into Miriam's that's why Miriam dies oh, okay uh, or Miriam doesn't die but is is weakened so that she can be put into the coffin mm-hmm. um, so somehow that that blood mingling science yeah <laughs> science of vampires <laughs> Who aren't really vampires, but Egyptian? I think she was a queen in that one. Oh yeah, that one flashback scene mm-hmm. where we see her in the in the Nefertiti hat. Oh yeah, I loved how the movie like kind of traveled all over, like oh, yeah. France and Egypt. That's pretty cool. Oh, I loved the the scenes where her and David Bowie were in in uh, France, and they were all dressed in the period clothing mm-hmm. in the uh, 1600s, I guess, and. Um, it was just, it was like, they were so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. How fun would it be to play dress up with David Bowie? Oh, too? yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what else uh, stood out to you, like, as a metaphor within this film? It felt, like, really rich. Um, and I think that's why I loved it mm-hmm. so much, was that richness of metaphor. Um, you know, I think... There was an, there was this idea of um, duality, you know the 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 duality. You sort of touched on this when you were talking about marriage is definitely a theme here, and I think one of the metaphors that that um, I picked up was the idea of having two the two couples, you know, and a metaphor for marriage of of self-sacrifice from Susan Sarandon and her husband, you know, mm-hmm. even though she kills him. She feels so bad she kills herself, mm-hmm. um, allegedly, or maybe she just doesn't want to be an a-, a blood addict. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the relationship between uh, Miriam and John and, and how disconnected they really are at the deepest level because she's been lying to him mm-hmm. the entire time. And so I think, you know, to me, it's, it, there, it, there's definitely a, a metaphor of monogamy. You know, what does it mean? And, mm-hmm. and uh, how did, I think that's kind of what was going on in the 80s, too. You know, I think people were questioning life, their lifestyles and the choices they made. And, you know, um, is, is being married and, and in a monogamous relationship the best way to live. David Bowie didn't think so mm-hmm. <laughs> until he met, you know, Iman. But, <clears throat> um, and I think everybody was experimenting back then with their sexuality. So I think it, that was definitely a metaphor for taking risks and, you know, having multiple sexual partners and, and, um, I yeah, I think I think that's definitely part of. Um, part of what the novel was about it's been a long time since I read that novel um, Whitley Strieber or Stryber I'm not sure how you say his name Strieber or Stryber he's allegedly was supposed to be doing a sequel they announced it in 2009 I think really yeah that wow. hasn't come up it's, he's taking a long time, time. <laughs> yeah um, uh, or not a sequel I'm sorry a remake a remake oh okay they commissioned him, the writer of the novel, to write the screenplay mm-hmm. to do a remake, and I was all excited. Mm-hmm. And then I never heard anything else, so I don't know if that just fell apart or it's in development hell or what's going on with that. Yeah, I feel like it now would be a perfect time to right? remake that movie. Everyone yeah. loves vampires. And, yeah, uh, you know they could probably get away with like pushing the boundaries even more in terms of like the sexuality because I couldn't imagine like. Like, now watching it in 2016, it felt very racy, but, like, watching it in 1983 must have been, like, (laughs) maybe it's a movie you watch alone, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that was kind of the, the, in New York anyway, the height of the Studio 54 and that glamorous, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of lifestyle of, uh, rock stars and celebrities and mixing with you know the comic people so 
you know, that was right before AIDS really hit, I think, and people kind of knew what was going on, which mm-hmm. is what Coppola, Coppola would do when he came out with his version of Dracula, you know, the Bram Stoker story. He, he really used that as a metaphor for, for AIDS and what was going on. And I think this was sort of the pre, <laughs> this mm-hmm. was the party era <laughs> where, you know, it was, it was all about the sexuality and, the, and uh, you know, the pushing the boundaries and everything. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like the the addiction to blood? Like, what do you feel that represented for this time period? Hmm. I was three, so I wasn't like. That's very a really good question. Um, if I had to guess, mm-hmm. I kind of drugs. Mm-hmm. Even um, there's that one scene. I don't know if you remember where Alice says uh, to Miriam, "You want some quaaludes?" Oh my gosh! Yes, <laughs> I was like, "What?" She's yeah. Like, Drugs, coke, probably. Oh yeah, oh definitely. With your uh, when you were talking about Studio Fifty Four too, yeah. that tie in. Yeah, um, and you know, <clears throat> we look back, and you know, everyone knows the dangers of cocaine. It's kind of hard to believe that coke really was not considered to be a dangerous drug when it when it was you know first being introduced to to people. It was kind of like the the wonder drug, you know, that got old really quick, and mm-hmm. people figured it out pretty fast. It was not a, not a good drug, but there wasn't a sense of danger about coke. You know, it was it was oh no, everyone knew you try heroin, you become a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. But nobody was a coke head or a coke addict back then. Everyone was just beautiful and having fun, <laughs> and so thin, snorting lines, and so thin, and getting so much done. <laughs> That's interesting that you bring that up because I, I was watching the last season of Mad Men and there's a, a scene where Joan and her boyfriend just, you know, do a little coke yep. and like, it's no big deal. And uh, yeah, I guess that was... Well, and David Bowie had his whole his whole downfall into cocaine, had yeah. to go to Berlin and with Iggy and get all straightened out. Go to Germany, get fixed, come on back. Yeah, it all worked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's it's a drug that's huge in the comedy scene as well, honestly, and it's really annoying. Like it doesn't make you funnier. <laughs> Ask Richard Pryor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. Like I have a full time job. I'm a union organizer um, with the graduate employees at UIC. Um, so I do that. That's where I went. Did my grad. School. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah, I do that forty hours a week, and then I do comedy. I do the podcast and, you know, maintain relationships as well. And I feel like once you start doing cocaine, it's like everything just becomes a party. You get nothing done. And I don't know. I guess I don't have time for cocaine is what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) We're too busy for cocaine. Yeah. Yeah. So you you went to UIC? I did go to so UIC. So you like born and raised Chicago? No, no. I grew I actually grew up in the Quad Cities, um, Moline and Rock Island, Davenport and Bettendorf. It's right on the Mississippi River, and I grew up in Moline. And um, I moved here to actually to go to to school. Um, I started. I did my undergraduate at Columbia in fiction writing, and then I did my master's at UIC in um, poetry and creative writing. And then I just started teaching film at Columbia uh, when I was a grad student. Oh, cool. And the next thing you know, it's been 20 years. Yeah, time flies. <laughs> How did that happen? Age, aging. <laughs> <laughs> Need to get you an onk, and, uh, and then you'll live forever. Um, so the I'm curious about the vampire theme class that you teach. Um, it sounded like the hunger plays a, a, a larger chunk in that class. Yeah, it's oh, it's such a fun class. It's uh, it's a, what we do is we screen a different vampire film every week, and then we talk about sort of just like we are, mm. you know, observations, and then they have readings where we look at what's uh, you know critical analysis and what other people have written about it, and we debate it whether it's you know whether we agree or disagree with the ideas. Ah. Um, <clears throat> well, and it gives me a chance. Um, to learn about all different kinds of vampire movies. I have, uh, I had a Korean student, uh, I think it was a year ago, who introduced me to Thirst, which is this 
crazy Korean vampire movie mm. and I had never seen it before and all my students were like oh I can't believe you haven't seen that and it was it was really an interesting take on religion mm. as uh, a metaphor in the film which I don't think we see that in this film I don't really think there's any you know I, I guess you could argue and say maybe some sort of pseudo Egyptian <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but that's about as close as you get to religion. I didn't see any symbols or metaphors or anything for religion. No, it seemed pretty <clears throat> much like a rejection. Yeah. of anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like maybe anti, almost. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the classes is popular. A lot of students uh, uh, take it, and uh, I think they're kind of surprised, you know, that that there's, you know, that there are so many different ways to look at vampirism and and in how far it goes back. It's it's interesting because every single culture in the world has a vampire myth. Really? Yeah. There is not a single culture that doesn't have one. Wow. Is there one like specific to the United States? Um well, um some guy in New Jersey. <laughs> Um, we sort of do what we do with everything else, I think. We appropriate yeah, we just everyone. Take it. Yeah. <laughs> we just take it. Belagosi <laughs> wasn't from here. He's from here. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. I've always loved Belagosi. Me too. It's so sexy. Me oh too. I, I mean, if, um, if you watch, go back and watch that 1931 version, it's really interesting because he has powers that unlike all, any other vampire I mm-hmm. mean he can hypnotize people with those with those uh, eye lights that they put yeah. in <laughs> I remember watching that and thinking like is it really hypnotism or is it just like lust yeah, to go to Bella <laughs> come to me that cape you know yeah. he just puts the cape around totally <laughs> yeah I also enjoyed him in White Zombie so much too like the just controlling people or was that him I've never seen White Zombie yeah, it's um, that is more like on the voodoo end of things. I better watch that. Yeah, huh? oh, you'd yeah. Love it. yeah, yeah. You would love it. Uh, what what so? What do the students think of the hunger when they see it? You know, I'm always a I, I, well, I'm not anymore, but I used to be a little nervous to show it because it's um, it's pretty bloody, and mm-hmm. you know now we have all these sort of rules and regulations where we have to do trigger warnings and and the sexuality. Um, I worry more, you know, with trigger warnings about um, the sexuality. I guess a lot of people, you know, there isn't really any rape sense of rape in this particular film but um you always have to make be careful with students but um they actually really love it Mm. they love the film and i think it's david bowie i really do and and they recognize the cheese amount you know the certain amount of um uh bad makeup in the at the very end with all the dead bodies oh yeah that's such a fun scene though i know i know (laughs) where they crumble to dust once miriam falls off the balcony Mm -hmm. and you know what's so funny is like i thought they were all trying to attack her like kind of like a night of living dead eat the Uh but they were trying to kiss yeah they were trying to kiss kisses (laughs) (laughs) she can't she can't kiss them That's probably the scene that might push it over the edge a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, um, into into a little hokiness. But um, but th- I think it's, it was really interesting to me to I sort of thought David Bowie was like my generation, and that they might not really connect to him. But the, a lot of them were really affected by his art and his music as well. So mm-hmm. I think they really enjoy watching him in the film. And um, who doesn't like to see Susan Sarandon mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, in a sex scene, no less. So, yeah, I think, um, I think it's really um, uh, interesting how the students responded to that, mm-hmm. to that film. And uh, they liked it more than I expected them to. Cool. Yeah, actually, also in that that ending scene where all the former lovers are coming at Miriam, that did feel like a really good representation of a needy partner. <laughs> oh like, yeah, there's nothing more unattractive than neediness, and then they're all like, 
rotting and like mm, kiss me kiss me i need you it was like oh yeah oh that's that really right. insightful <laughs> yeah that's really good i never thought of that that's really true that it is like a it is like a really needy person well and it was so sad that she couldn't even pretend to kiss david bowie once he was old yeah you know it's like really Give him a little bit <laughs> yeah. you gotta worry about oh those knee joints <laughs> let the man walk <laughs> Yeah, oh, and then also, like in terms of relationships, that scene where Tom and Sarah are at dinner, and you know she had just had an affair with Miriam, but um, like I don't really think like she was giving off anything, you know, like it was just a one-time thing, and it's not like she'd been disappearing every Tuesday from three to five, and he was just attacking her, a like, grilling her. Where were you? Three and a half hours. Yeah, how you dare were missing. you spend three hours without me? It's like, whoa, what kind of couple are they? Yep. They can't spend three hours alone. Like, yep, that was really that was really a, a telling moment about that relationship too. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, it was it it was kind of ironic then that he became her first you know victim that she fed off of mm-hmm. so this is what i've been doing <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome to my secret life <laughs> well that's so surprising that susan sarandon had so much of a, a hand in kind of changing the plot i, I honestly hadn't heard many uh, writers or uh, actors doing that i think that's pretty common mm-hmm. uh, i think a good director always um, listens to the actor mm-hmm. and I'm guessing that they might have been in improv doing improvisation of some kind and and it probably I mean I kind of think she was right it it did seem like it wasn't authentic mm-hmm. to the character to have to be drunk to sleep with Catherine yeah Dinner. she's a doctor yeah she's you know doing high level research exactly and I I really like too that they they set it up in that sort of montage scene where she, you can tell that all day long after she meets her the first time she keeps thinking about her mm-hmm. and she keeps thinking she sees her yeah. and you're not quite sure if that's a magical element is she really seeing her can Miriam manipulate her mind mm-hmm. kind of seemed like she could yeah. like that that phone scene was really interesting to me where she thinks the phone is ringing and you know you kind of assume that she thinks it's Miriam and her office mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. her assistant or whoever she is is like um, the phone didn't ring I'm that brought me telling. back to high school <laughs> 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 totally right <laughs> I think it did <laughs> yeah it was the phone it was totally the phone for me right only the the tension between uh, Miriam and Sarah was very palpable like you knew you felt it coming yeah. like oh this is totally gonna happen like yeah, I mean Catherine Deneuve is just so cool. She just that hairstyle she oh, has. Oh, it's great! The, it's French twist, double French twist with the perfect blonde, you know. And and I mean, she was just at the peak of her beauty at that particular time. And her hair was done that way in every scene, wasn't it? Yeah, wow. I think it was. It's a lot of work. <laughs> I think it was. I can barely be bothered to brush my hair most days. So. <laughs> I used to be a hairdresser. Oh, really? <laughs> That's crazy. I used to manage a hair salon. You did? Yep. A long time ago. <clears throat> yeah, I put myself through school. I was a hairdresser for 20 years. Wow. I know. It was a crazy time to be a hairdresser. I bet it was more fun. <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was a great job to have. It was a lot of fun. It was a great way to put yourself through school because you could always study while you were, you know, in between clients or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was... It, it was for me, anyway, it was kind of, you know, it was all about shallow and superficial looks. And and it just after so many years, you just were hungry for, to do something else. I could see that. <laughs> I, I observed a lot of the relationships between, like, hairdressers and their clients. And it did feel kind of like therapy a lot oh, yeah. of the times. Like, people sit in that chair and they will tell you everything. And, like, they kind of felt like emotional vampires, oh, yeah. really. <laughs> That's actually a really interesting, that's really interesting insight because I think you're right. And I remember thinking to myself, I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I remember saying, I'm going to be a writer. And I, 
I remember doing that job and thinking to myself, oh, I've got stories for miles. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I, mean, I can tell. I've got these people's stories soaked up, sponged up to, mm-hmm. to use in the future. I, I feel like I have way too many stories. You what, know, what do you from, think is the most scandalous thing you heard that you were told? Um, the most scandalous thing that I, I was told was um, that I had... I had this really beautiful young woman who was my client, and her husband was my co-worker's client. And he was having an affair and would bring his lover into the salon, and I was never allowed, you know, I was very, make sure that this particular person does not come into the salon at the same time that this person is gonna be there what an because idiot. worlds will collide. <laughs> He was an idiot. Yeah. He was an idiot. And they had eight kids. And it was like, are you kidding me? And she was, his wife was so beautiful and nice. And mm-hmm. I don't know what, I wonder whatever happened if she ever found out. I moved away. Yeah. <laughs> Before the affair ended. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to cross that boundary. <laughs> but that was probably the most scandalous thing. There are lots of them though. <laughs> So, um, out of all the vampire movies, is The Hunger your favorite vampire? Yeah, I think it is. Mm, yeah. I think it's. I think it's top five. You know, it has to be. Um, and it's probably you know it's probably my age because it's my it, it was an era that was really sort of um, uh, a really golden time in in history for me that it was you know it's your party time you're mm-hmm. gr- you're growing up and it's your party time mm-hmm. and um i'd say i'd say that that is definitely my favorite vampire film but i also really like the 1931 bella lugosa mm-hmm. vampire film as well in fact i i kind of debated which one we should talk about but we kind of got both of them yeah in there. <laughs> and i love that there's crossover you know like well, and I think they are, there really is. Like, I think you build this sort of, um, you know, layering of the of what's come before. Like, it's really interesting to me now um, that vampires have become more and more and more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, to now they're just kind of like superstars. You know, you got the Twilight oh, yeah. Saga, and those are some you know beautiful I actually, vampires. I haven't seen any of those. How do you feel about them? Oh, my students just have a fit when I tell them that I absolutely love them. Yeah. <laughs> How can you like that? It's such crap. I'm like, listen, I read and watch everything because I, you know, I know who the audience is. It's not really um, aimed at, uh, at um, you know, the average male, white male audience. It's definitely um, a a um, young adult audience Mm -hmm. but when you go to the theater it's all middle-aged women (laughs) and they're gay friends which is really really interesting right (laughs) it is and um, it was really fun because I confessed and you do have to confess because the students just hold their head like oh I've lost all respect for you (laughs) oh yeah totally it's a film school I suppose yeah what am I talking about I fall off the pedestal really fast anyway, so um, <laughs> I mentioned, I confessed to a colleague that, yeah, I, I really I really like those those books. And she mm-hmm. said, do you want to go see the films? <laughs> so it became a ritual. <laughs> and she said, uh, I'll never forget, have you, have you seen, you haven't seen any of them? I haven't. Oh. I, well, <laughs> I guess there's like this whole thing for the, for the preteens, you're either Team Edward or... Oh yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. Jacob? Jacob, yeah. Yeah. And I just remember she was sitting next to me in the theater and she turned to me and she said, I just can't understand how anyone could be attracted to that Edward. And I said, I feel the same way about Jake. <laughs> Jacob is the werewolf, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so now that I have an expert in my house, I want to ask you, what's the deal with werewolves and vampires? Why do they hate each other so much? Um, well, you know, that's really interesting because um, in the novel, they, the, the, in Stoker's, and in folklore also, um, in Stoker's version, he has, Dracula has command over the wolf. And the wolves, like the bats, are kind of like his, his henchmen. His, mm-hmm. And he can turn into a wolf. 
and he can turn into a bat. Um, so there's there's um, this uh, transmogrification where he can become other animals, and those happen to be the ones that he can turn into. Um, I I don't know a whole lot about mm-hmm. werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> other than that, me neither. <laughs> They're not as interesting to me as vampires. Me neither. You know? Vampires are just so fascinating to me, and you know, the the there's all kinds of theories of you know why that myth sort of became perpetuated. Was it that were they and and they were they were burying a lot of people prematurely and Ugh. that weren't yet dead. So when they would dig them up, they would you know <laughs> see them, <laughs> and so they assumed they would get out at night and mm-hmm. go and and maybe some of them were trying to get out, you know. So there was um, there's a whole series of folklore. And by the way, Dracula's castle is, is uh, up for sale right now. You really? Can, yeah, the real dra- Dracul. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> we could have the podcast there. <laughs> that would be great. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, and actually, like, you know, just bringing up werewolves and other, like, characters in horror, I think the vampire is the one that has probably, like, evolved the most and been in the most movies and... If you look it's back, the number one most adapted source in in uh, the history of film. Yeah. Does that surprise you? It did me. <laughs> yeah, actually, it really does. But if you look back, like, there's no, I mean, very rarely is there a film about a mummy or, you know, like, werewolves have kind of come around a little bit, but no one cares. Zombies? <laughs> zombies and vampires. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I love, though, so much about the vampire, because I feel like it's the absolute opposite of the zombie yeah you know so cunning and smart and sexy and you know where's the zombies just falling apart and dumb that's gonna happen too. <laughs> I think, why is this interesting he's just mm-hmm. eating people mm-hmm. um so yeah i think there's something um and even even the original novel um is is a he's a very sexualized character you know, and it's really interesting in the novel that they always align him with um, sort of a, being a Christ-like figure, the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. So he has all these, you know, it's a very religious novel. It plays with all the religious iconography. And he's really aligned, I think, with, um, with being the opposite of Christ. Um, but he is sort of a Christ-like figure, you know, and he's staked. And, I mean, mm-hmm. it's very... I never thought about that. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, he's he's uh he has some he has some religious issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I liked the hunger so much. I think it's rare that you see a woman being portrayed as the main vampire. Yeah. You know? That's a really good point, you know. I remember thinking that the first time I saw it that Catherine Deneuve is going to be a bad, a bad character. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so interesting to see her uh, sort of be undignified in the sense, mm-hmm. you know, where her hair falls down, blood is all over her, and she's, she's sort of in this violent struggle, and she falls off that balcony. Um, and the rust, and that's really contrasted with the, her and she's just so present and so um, seductive. And, mm-hmm. and almost her acting style in that film is, is different, I think, than other films I've seen her. And she's almost silent, you know. Like yeah. you said, there's hardly any dialogue. Yeah, like she is just, like you get the sense that she is aware of everything going on and that she's controlling it somehow. Yeah. But she doesn't say a word. Like that's totally what she gives off in this film. Yep, yep. Um, and I, you know, the music is so beautiful in that film mm-hmm. too. The classical music is just absolutely gorgeous. David Bowie learned to play the cello. Really? Well, I guess they mimed him in anyway, but he learned to play the cello. That's so cool. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I assume they were just uh, dubbing it over. You know, he's David Bowie. He probably learned that in the weekend. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. My aunt is a, um, a symphony cellist, and so when I was little, she tried to teach me, and <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I am not a symphony cellist now. <laughs> That's just testament to how hard it is. <laughs> well, he didn't become one either. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. <clears throat> 
But yeah, that that uh, the fact that they were musicians and we got to have that haunting, beautiful music was mm-hmm. really was really beautiful, and and that moment where all of a sudden to seduce Susan, she sits down at the piano and starts playing that song, and I think she says something like, um, "What's the song about?" and she goes, it's a love story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it was about a slave who... Yeah, it was two women. Yeah, it was... T- mm-hmm. And that's when she goes, are you trying to seduce me? Yeah, Mrs. Blaylock. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great line. <laughs> yeah. It was a great scene, too. So, any final thoughts on The Hunger? Um, I think The Hunger is just... It's a really beautiful film, and I feel like it's empowering for women in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I feel like it's kind of a feminine fi- film, and um, it's David Bowie, mm-hmm. who you know I never get tired of watching and and seeing him on screen. And you know, it's interesting too. Like we were talking about the vampire kind of changing throughout time and always being, you know, relevant. Oh, That's totally David totally Bowie. Totally David Bowie. Yeah. Always being relevant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you're right. You look back and you see that film. And it's still relevant today. It's still interesting. And I think it does capture sort of a time and place. Like even the fashion never looks outdated. Yeah, it looks good. Yeah. I was surprised by that. Yeah, I was I too. I actually double-checked the date when I saw it. I was like, oh. Yeah. some snappy dressers (laughs) (laughs) definitely uh yeah susan sarandon's haircut though i was like oh it's 80s yeah 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 and i think there's one raincoat that's that's like metallic or something it's like okay maybe that was the 80s yeah i'll give you that one but that was it no those were the only telltale fashion signs otherwise Mm -hmm. I, i think it's a really timely movie and i think it really speaks to um all of us who are crazy about David Bowie and, you know, I want that connection, you know, mm-hmm. to to his work again and think about the kinds of projects that he chose and why he might have chose them, you know. Mm-hmm. I think you're right on target that he was sort of like a, a person who could always adapt and always be timeless. Mm-hmm. Speaking of projects, uh, what are you working on? I'm working on a, a novel about Marie Laveau. It's a historical, biographical um, novel, so it's really hard. I've never done anything like it, and it's uh, it's really challenging me. It has a lot of research components, and just when I think I'm, I'm making headway, mm-hmm. <laughs> I go off on another tangent and have to go research something else. So I imagine you're getting a lot of unique primary sources, though. What's really interesting about her as a character is there's absolutely she is surrounded in mystery, and and she lived at a time where there was a, a lot of archival information that should have been there, but she was this really mysterious woman of color who had incredible power, and she must have been a really charismatic person as well. I'm about I'm about a couple hundred pages in, and I I I just feel like I have. I still have a ways to go. I don't feel like I really... I hope it's not going to be one of those crazy tomes, you know, (laughs) that nobody wants to carry around on the train. (laughs) No, I can't wait to read this book when it comes out. Oh, thank you. Um, And I'm working on a screenplay. I did a a short film with um, one of my colleagues uh, about a... uh, called Towing, about uh, a a female um, soldier returning from Iraq who was suffering from PTSD. And uh, so it was a drama, and we had we had a blast making it. We went out to L.A. and shot it for AFI. So we're trying to uh, come up with another project, and at some point um, I finished a couple drafts of the feature, and the feature is um, a comedy, of course. Oh, great. <laughs> What's it about? Um, it's, it's about uh, the same character. She's this Latina uh, woman tow truck driver um, who ultimately finds a shaman to to cure her from her PTSD. Hmm. And it's actually based on some of the cutting-edge research that's been done about um, how the brain works and, and how to rewrite the imprints on the brain 
which is basically, and how beautiful is this, writing down your story. And they give you like this really light sedative and you read the story so that you don't experience the trauma. Oh. And it rewrites the pattern in the brain so that the person doesn't actually live through it. They still remember it and they still have the, you know, sadness or whatever is attached to it, but it isn't incapacitating to them anymore. That's so interesting. So she's a woman shaman who, um, and, and that's part of her culture too, so it sort of gets her back in. And I actually was, was uh, spent some time in Belize um, uh, researching shamanism and got to meet a shaman and I sort of, based her, her on a combination of different characters that I learned about. Um, and they're not maybe what you might expect a shaman to be. Yeah, I've never met a shaman. They're just, <laughs> you know, they're just kind of ordinary, uh, interesting women. Um, my particular character is, her name is Dona Maria, and she wears uh, a pants, polyester pantsuit and and knits afghans <laughs> the whole time she's working. But they use a lot of herbs, and they use a lot of, um, uh, I think I would call it uh, intention, you know, the idea of using intention for things. And stories, you know, stories as a way of healing us. Ah, oh, I love storytelling. I actually, um, since I do uh, organize in Chicago, I run a storytelling show for other organizers to get together and talk about like all the crazy shit that happens because man you know like I've <laughs> personally like I've been spit on I've been yelled at by cops I've been like threatened I remember one time I was knocking doors in this rural area trying to get a union campaign going at a uh, like a food processing plant and this guy was like you best get out of here before I get my gun and I was like I will be leaving sir but um, wow. like what I wanted to do is like create a sense of community care through that storytelling, and uh, so oh, we, like every couple months idea. we get together and tell the stories and laugh and heal, you know, <laughs> so we can keep doing that it's, work. It's totally like that. That's awesome. It's totally like that, and I would say ninety percent of my classes are like that. So it's it's an amazing thing to see how that power can heal people, and sometimes people just aren't ready. You know, mm -hmm. it's just not the right time and anger comes up and other things come up and it, it's always, the person in the room who learns the most is me. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I'm the student who, <laughs> who's like, wow, you guys are really challenging me. Yeah, I never thought about that actually. <laughs> Writing is such an intimate process. Yeah. It must feel like a whole classroom full of people bearing their soul to you. It is. And you don't want to say, and you know, you want the work, to, you want it to be about the work and not the person. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes when those things start bleeding into each other, it's, um, it's your job to sort of make sure that step back, you know, step back. And I, I think we all, I don't, as any kind of artist, you struggle to find your authentic voice and, and, and to be honest with yourself and self-aware. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's a never-ending journey. Mm -hmm. For sure. <laughs> I'm always learning stuff. <laughs> and it, it's, it's, you know, the idea of story as healer is, um, goes all the way back to, you know, um, Joseph uh, Campbell, you know, and the, and the hero's journey and and how we heal from you know how we heal ourselves Carl Jung sort of adapted those same ideas so yeah I think storytelling is it's some powerful stuff mm -hmm, for sure well this has been awesome thank you so much for doing the podcast thank you so much for having me I had a blast all right that has been Professor Carrie Callis I'm Kristen Ryan and this has been Bloody Mary